Hello, and welcome back to Manga Explaining, the show where we recommend great manga to folks who haven't read much manga before. Hosted by Dabaoki, David Brothers, myself, Christopher Butcher, and our friend Chip Zdarsky. Follow along with our show notes and reading list at mangasplaining.com. That's right. You heard us correctly. We are welcoming you back to Manga Explaining. On your end, it will be, have been a short break. On our end, I think it was only like a week and a half or something like that that we <laughs> took a break of recording. But yeah, we're going to do season two of Manga Explaining. This is season two, episode one or 27 if you're, oh gee, if you're keeping, keeping track at home. We did this on episode one uh, way back. We introduced ourselves and I thought that that was a good thing to do. So now since this is season two, episode number one, I thought it might make sense to go around the group alphabetically and introduce ourselves. Deb, please tell the listeners of Mongo Explaining a little bit about yourself. Okay. My name's Deb Aoki. I guess people call me a manga journalist, but I'm just kind of like one of those book addicts. I just, once I get started, I just don't stop. One day my house will sink under its own weight. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, I write a lot about manga and I interview manga artists. I write about the manga business and I, I'm usually on Twitter at Debaoki, kind of like bringing up all kinds of weird manga related topics. Lovely to have you back, Deb. David? <laughs> so I'm David Brothers. I'm a former comics critic, former panel god at Image Comics. <laughs> And current manga editor, which leads him though into fun crises here on the podcast. Mm. Uh, like Deb, I also, you know, I love manga. I love American comics. And I kind of lower the tone a little bit, which is really, fu really fun. Lower the tone. <laughs> so self, so self-effacing. I'm Christopher Butcher. I've done a lot of stuff in comics, including editing manga and things like that. I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff coming up. It's pretty exciting, but it's not quite ready to be talked about yet because I haven't you know, signed a contract. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes over the next couple of weeks live on Manga Splaining. And now the reason for the season, the big man himself, Chip Zdarsky. Chip. Yeah, my name is Chip Zdarsky and I'm somewhat of a manga expert <laughs> since I've gone through season one of this. I write and sometimes draw for more of the uh, traditional Western North American corporate companies like Marvel and DC. And if I, if I may say, I'm a, I'm a little bit beloved. Little bit, little bit beloved. Yeah, I'm just gonna lean into it. I'm, I'm a little bit beloved. <laughs> That's nice. I just lost three Eisners. No, so, I mean, in in one night, but I, I'm still holding on to feeling a little bit beloved. You're in good company because my name means beloved. And I've also lost three Eisners. Oh, hey, Not there you go. Night, <laughs> the fourth one's the charm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't won an Eisner, but I did go up and take one. So That's I true. think that counts. I did eventually give it to Ken, so it was okay. But <laughs> nice. I did get an Eisner for a little while. And when bringing it through security at Narita Airport, they were like, what is in your bag? And I'm like, an award. And they looked at it and they were like, okay, that was fun. I liked doing that. <laughs> so wait, did you take credit for the award? Is that what no, you're saying? No, sadly. Not to the Narita security people. I was like, oh, I've got an award. I didn't say it was mine. Ken, who who did I Kill Giants. Henshin. And Henshin, he won an Eisner Award, and he asked me to accept it on his behalf because I was at the Eisner ceremony this year, that year. Mm -hmm. And it was nice. It was nice to get up on stage and accept an award. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It wasn't mine. But maybe one day. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I hope I'm there to hear your awesome speech. 
<laughs> Thank you. And then just walk right off. No one wants to be there as long as they are. Speaking of the Eisners, I feel a little bit bad because our, our big pick didn't win this year. It was Ooh. a journal of my father, which we all really loved and unfortunately didn't come through. But that's okay. It, it went to it went to Junji Ito for Ramina, which is hilarious because we might be talking a little bit about Junji Ito a little bit later this episode. We'll see. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. He's in everything. Yeah, season two. We're starting off season two with, I'll just say it's Phoenix Future by by Osamu Tezuka, published by Viz Media. It was the first Phoenix volume released in North America. Then why is Phoenix Dawn labeled as volume one? Well, it's because they released volume two first. Is there something you wanted to Yeah, you're no damn well. (laughs) Look, to kick off season two, three of the people on this panel read the wrong Phoenix volume. I think they read the Phoenix. I'm not holding it against anyone. (laughs) Deb, you've read both volumes, right? I'll say that I read, I only recently reread volume two, Future, because I had to. Because I want to be able to talk about it. And I only recently ran back to my bookshelf to get volume one because I wanted to at least have something to talk about with Chip. (laughs) So for those of you not following out home, one minute before the podcast started, and I was like, okay, Phoenix Future, Chip was like, wait, not Dawn? And no, Dawn is volume one. Future is volume two. And looks like Chip read the wrong book. Uh, meanwhile, I think this is the, great personally. Yeah, the whole yeah. point of the podcast is to introduce me to manga. And <laughs> well, you did get introduced to a manga. Yeah, no, I, I did. Yeah, this is my first Tezuka, so that's cool. <laughs> I like that the one you read is also a hundred pages longer than volume two. It's so long. <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> oh, very upsetting. Uh, I don't know exactly what we're going to do about this but look look i'm i'm i mean you guys can talk me through phoenix future and i'll i'll probably ask questions about it and maybe relay it back to phoenix dawn okay i'll I'll try to like bridge some of the things that happen in Mm. because i'm flipping through phoenix dawn the first volume or the the volume that says it's the first volume (laughs) (laughs) and there's some definite visual themes that happen Mm that Tezuka does in both books, in, in, yeah. in a lot of his books. So I don't think we're a hopeless case. No. <laughs> I say, we, I say I, we just, we we go with it. Tell me what Phoenix Future is about, because I'm, I'm quite interested. So I picked Phoenix Future <laughs> rather than Phoenix Dawn for much the same reason that the folks at Pulp Magazine, at Viz's Pulp Magazine, picked Phoenix Future when they decided to publish it first. And that's because it's a sci-fi story. It's set in the year 3000 and something, sort of after the peak of humanity and we're in sort of our gradual decline. So it's a far-flung science fiction epic about what could be the end of humanity. And it's, you know, it's a it's in that tradition of like old school sci-fi manga that is like or sci-fi stories that are really trying to comment on present day issue Mm. there's this idea in it that is pervasive that decadence is like that going to be the downfall of humanity that people are constantly trying to look backwards rather than look forwards that have stopped trying to innovate and instead are trying to dig back into old fashions and old styles and at the core of the story are two people that just want to be left alone one is a human and one is an alien who's taken on human form 
And the sort of central government, the computer that runs the society, has said that, no, that that alien who's taken on human form has to die, that people have to stop looking backwards, that people have to behave in this way. Progress is, is the most important thing, et cetera, et cetera. And it, of course leads to the destruction of humanity because the computer just you know ruling our society turns out not not the greatest thing to follow leads to the end of humanity spoilers but not really spoilers this is a book that was originally published in 1967 and 1968 the time for spoilers has passed i guess they picked this because phoenix volume one which is dawn is very much rooted in ancient sort of ancient history ancient japanese history as well mm-hmm. there's different legends things that come to play but if you said things in the future you can sort of pick and choose from these things but you're still trying to reintroduce it to a contemporary reader i picked future you know after being suggested that phoenix was the way to go thanks to the folks on the osama tezuka facebook fan group because the art is so good the art in in this one in my opinion is maybe some of the best the most visually interesting and impressive sci-fi kind of art i've seen and i think it made a huge impact on me when i first read it when when it first came out even before it came out and that's what i wanted why i wanted to share it and i think it ended up being a really good match for censor which is the other book that we're reading this week you did read censor didn't you chip oh i read sensitive don't worry about it we'll get to it so yeah there's a lot to talk about when it comes to tezuka when it comes to the phoenix series when it comes to reading the correct book but we're going to put all that aside for a moment <laughs> and we're going to go and let somebody else talk for a second. I want to actually get David or Deb, I would love to get your opinions on, you know, Phoenix Future, what you thought of the series. I can go first. Since I think Chip and I are the newbies <laughs> for this pod, like you two have clearly read more Phoenix than I have. And I think I've read MW previously. Mm. And maybe one other from Vertical. But I did not know what to expect. This was another where I just kind of came in cold. You know, I didn't read any any back cover copy, any summaries, any takes. I was just like, all right, Phoenix Future, let's go. And it was pretty solid. I think some of the storytelling is really interesting, more so than the actual story is for me. Mm. Like, I see some of the themes that Tesco was working with, and like, I get it, but also it does it didn't quite resonate with me the way I expected it to. I'm really surprised because you picked Seven Billion Needles for the yeah. podcast a little while back. I thought, like, I thought that the sort of old school science fiction ideas in this would really resonate with you, but no, I didn't. Didn't do I it. I think it's too sci-fi. Okay, hmm. which is maybe a weird thing to say, you know, after Needles, but like the scale is so huge, and the creatures you meet are so out there. Hmm. Like several people kind of crumble to dust or like mud over the course of the story. And it's a story that spans billions of years and kind of ends with like a weird shaggy dog joke almost where it's like, oh, like you were the one you needed all along. Yeah. (laughs) But I appreciate like doing this in like 67, 69 is kind of awesome. Like it really gave me like a Jim Starlin vibe, which is, I don't, it's a good vibe for comics, like this kind of like cosmic pretentiousness, but (laughs) made in books for like teens and children. Like there's Mm. something very, very solid about that the lettering i thought was interesting like it's clearly like a little bit like an older aesthetic than what we see now Mm -hmm. you know like the phoenix having their own font and it being kind of like a fancy fancy deal yeah that was weird for me too yeah but then all yeah go for it i was just gonna say did did future have kind of like like i was reading dawn again my mistake i was struck by the fact that it felt like something for kids. 
Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, there'd be this like really adult thing that happens, a really shocking thing. I, I was wondering if, if that was the case in future. Almost yeah. vice versa for me, where the majority of it feels pretty adult and mature, like, oh, this is about the nature of life. And then there'll be like a pratfall or someone will say, like, yeah. oh, I wish Tezuka was here to draw something for us. Yeah. Tezuka, I think when they first started pu- publishing Tezuka in English, I will say that, you know, he comes with a rep, right? He comes with the God of Manga, dun, 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 yeah. you know, thing. So, you know, everyone's really excited to read it. But his, I think what people really struggle with is that his cartooning style looks cute and childlike. I mean, not, not childlike, but like rounded and the characters look like they're for kids, you know, because he did draw mm-hmm. Astro Boy, right? Which was kind of a kid's book. That style is still there no matter how serious or how dark his work gets. It mm-hmm. is, that's how he draws. But there, it feels like a disconnect, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also like the modern gags. Like, <laughs> yes. so like Tezuka shows up in this at some point. Yeah. As like a, as like a bather. Like, he kind of can't help himself. He's kind of like Alfred Hitchcock a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good comparison. There's a, a reference to a 30th generation offspring of Osamu Tezuka on page nine. Of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just him and his little beret and his little glasses going yeah. up the uh, super yeah. crowded elevator. And it's super cute. Kind of love... I kind of love that, but that is a really common criticism of his work when it first started being translated because people didn't know what to expect. And they're like, I keep hearing about Tezuka and this is not at all like the, the gags, the jokes, <laughs> the pratfalls, the like sexual humor that like is like in a like cheeky kind of a 70s way. It's not kind of gross that comes into a lot of stuff, but even the more serious stuff, it's very rare, but it's still in there in the, in the really serious stuff that there'd be like a gag or two. Yeah. And that's what's so that's what's so interesting to me. Chip, it's interesting you picked Dawn because Dawn is the first <laughs> first story that he did, but it was also the story that he launched his own magazine to do. <clears throat> so the magazine was called Calm and uh, com and it was 67 uh gato which is like the big alternative underground magazine had sort of really come to prominence was doing its best circulation it was never as big as like the shonen magazines or anything like that but it was like it was pitching this idea of like a different kind of comics so whereas you know mainstream comics were called manga the the gato style was called gekiga and it was that term was coined by tatsumi yoshihiro who came to tgap before before he passed away who did the pushman and stuff like that and it was this idea of like serious pictures serious you know comics and things like that and tezuka was like fiercely competitive and so when he saw gato doing well he's like i need my own that so he founded <laughs> com magazine and his first serial as far as i as far as i've been able to research was phoenix dawn he revived this phoenix concept he had in the 50s to make it more serious except he was still doing all of his like you know boys adventure comics and boys sci-fi and like shonen and astro boy at the time and whatever so he's trying to do this mature comic series except he's just never done it before so like you get moments of like Mm. seriousness but he's still coming out of this like really really strong milieu of like having worked only in this one sort of space and style for so long and he can only change himself so much now that said, when you get to future, whereas you know the first story, Dawn, feels a little bit to me, and and, and I think to Chip, like a kids action adventure story that has weirdly serious moments. Future is like, okay, he's done a year of this and kind of figured out the lay of the land. He was working with a lot of other mangaka in that magazine who were also putting out stories that were challenging him and really inspiring him. Future comes in and it's like, okay, it's more of a serious thing but he still can't quite shake, you know, like got to, got to, got to, got to stick the knife in every once in a while. got to make a little joke. Got to like, 
you know, what have you. So I think it's interesting too that by the time you get to like his really late late period mature works like Otakira Hito, MW, or things like that, yeah, it's a lot more like deathly serious, you know, but he still can't get rid of gags. But before we go any further, Deb has just pointed out that we didn't actually explain what future is about. So I'm just going to what Phoenix is about in general. Or what Phoenix is a book where we're, we like reading the back of the book. It's become a thing here. <laughs> we did it three episodes in a row. It's now a thing. We got to give it a name. But Phoenix Future, considered by many to be one of the finest works of Japanese comics ever produced, Phoenix Future is a rollicking space age adventure, an apocalyptic cautionary tale, a fable of human frailty and triumph, and a fantastic voyage through time, space, and the macroverse. Above all, it is a great love story, an epic account of Class II space patrolman Masato's tragic, undying love for the doomed, beautiful alien Mupul, Tamami. Told in bold layouts and mind-warping page designs that revolutionized Japanese comics, this is the work of the greatest manga artist of them all, Osama Tezuka, soaring at the height of his powers. Which I think sums up the volume that we read <laughs> pretty clearly. I'll read the, the description for Dawn, so you can kind of see yeah. the contrast here. <laughs> yeah, future sounds great. Future sounds, it's, <laughs> it, it's pretty good. Okay. Phoenix Dawn. With grand historical sweep, this self-contained opening volume of Osama Tezuka's acclaimed Phoenix Saga is an epic account of the human spirit in a time of chaos and warfare, where would-be warrior Nagi and his crew struggle against the elements, invaders, and history itself. Hmm. Sounds like oh, two different books, right? <laughs> yeah. Two, two completely different stories. <laughs> but we should probably point out that this is two of 12 different stories that are all in the first sort of Phoenix milieu. And the thing that links them together is that they take place in first off in a shared universe that is, you know, could be ours, could be, you know, a parallel universe, but the Phoenix character, the actual firebird, the Phoenix that exists and is threaded throughout each of these stories and how the Phoenix affects these people's lives that are, that are in the stories that are told. They all tend to be a little bit about reincarnation and about man's quest for immortality which the phoenix represents but also about cruelty and greed and how that's not the way to go it's not the way to be and so it comes out of this like yeah this this like we're trying to explain this to children to be good but also maybe we're trying to explain this to adults as well because it's the 70s and things are not going according to peace and harmony a lot of the time and so you know com magazine is founded and things like that chip i would actually love like in all sincerity to actually get your opinion of the book that you of, of phoenix dawn of the, of the one that you read because i think that you're i think i'll i think we'll all be maybe a little surprised at how the two connect well i was really hoping at this point that you guys would have talked about it so i could just piggyback on what you said about it <laughs> but since nobody did <laughs> i'm kind of screwed i'm reading along with you <laughs> don't worry <laughs> me too actually uh you know what i I liked it. I think I think I felt too much of a disconnect, maybe like David did with the future. Mm. The parts that I liked were that it was surprising. Like mm. it, it reminded me a lot of uh, Mermaid Saga, where just like, oh, whoa, okay, that's what's happening mm. now. Oh, interesting. In terms of like characters, where they go, who lives, who dies, uh, I, I found it. It felt unplanned. It felt mm. very much like, oh, what can I do to them in the next five pages? Like what what happens now? Like there's like in in Dawn, there's like kind of two secondary characters that end up trapped in like a, a cave system where they can't get out, but then they realize there's enough vegetation there that they can they can live down there. 
So they do, and they have like a bunch of babies and stuff. Like it's just like it's such a weird digression. And then it goes super dark. Like the babies die. And I'm just like any story that has like baby deaths as much as this one did and kind of so casual. I'm just like, is this for children? Is it for adults? Like mm. stuff like that pulled me out. And I was just like, maybe it's a of the time thing that I'm not connecting with here with the storytelling choices. Like maybe readers back in the day would have been like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All those babies died. Okay. Oh, the, <laughs> the marauders came and killed a bunch of kids. Okay. Yeah. That's what happens. So, so it was very strange. It was like definitely reading it through a lens mm. where I'm not the target audience in, in, and not the target decade, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, I mean, I, there, there was a lot of really interesting cartooning happening in it. And frankly, a lot of not great cartooning as well. So I kind of, ex- I almost actually expected the art to be a little bit better. I know I'm talking about, you know, a manga god. But you just can't draw a hand coming at you, holding a thing. Just doesn't know how to. I'm looking at that on page 45 right now, and it, he has definitely got a stylistic decision going on there, as opposed, and um, maybe a more anatomically accurate decision. It's not even accurate. It's just like it's things like like a hand holding a thing, but he hasn't given enough space to the hand, so it looks like it's going around it. Mm. Like it looks like it looks like you know if he's holding a bow or something you know this is getting into the weeds a bit but he's holding a bow but the bow lines up with almost like the outside of his hand yeah like those are just like there are a few things like that reading it where I'm just like oh these are kind of weird mistakes but I can also see there's a high level of competency and speed with the work because mm-hmm. it is pretty free flowing kind of cartooning with the the characters themselves and so I think that excuses a lot of that. And the background details are what kind of really jump out. But it, it, yeah, it's the, every once in a while I would hit a page where I'm like, oh, that's a really fascinating thing that he's doing on the page. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he was doing it, you know, back in the 50s, 60s or wherever makes it a lot more interesting. I, I think what's interesting about Tezukus and what I, what I enjoy most about him is that his endless curiosity with exploring with the, how, how to frame comics how to frame action, how to frame tension, how to, how to set up how time is represented yeah. and relationships between characters. And he doesn't, you know, like, you know, like a lot of French BD, right? It's just a grid yeah. or, mm-hmm. or it's just block, 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 block. And he does have a lot more panels per page than most manga. Mm, but yeah. oh, but yeah. he, do, he does a lot of things that are really interesting and sometimes playful. Mm-hmm. Like he'll do things where like the, the characters will burst between panels like Calvin and Hobbes did that sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, playing with that kind of thing, or he'll draw five or six panels of the same scene, but it'll be slight differences in each scene. Yeah. Like five or six panels stacked on top of each other. And you, you'll see like the characters moving within it, kind of like in a play. Yeah. He'll do things like he'll make pages of very dense, condensed, tiny panels, turn the page and woof. It's a full page spread of something. Mm. Yeah. He he's very cinematic and he's very I guess just he's just having fun. I yeah. I just kind of feel like sometimes he just does whatever he feels like just to s- satisfy his own curiosity to see what how he can push the visual storytelling vocabulary. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of trying new things every couple yeah. of pages really. Yeah, and and yeah, some sometimes there's mistakes made along the way, but like 
the, 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 the kind of massive swings he was taking with the form definitely outweigh that. Yeah. The thing about panel borders happens on page 159 of Dawn, where a guy not only like falls backward into a border, but also launches forward into the next yes. one. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. looking at that one. <laughs> it's yeah. really good. And mm. on the following page, like speaking of the playfulness of Tezuka, there's an Osamatsu joke, uh, Osamatsu-san, this story of oh, yeah. five brothers. Uh, and they translated it as, and we ain't the Osmonds, instead of, you know, we're not Yosomatsu brothers. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, it was super popular in Japan in the 60s. It recently had like a pretty good revival. Uh, there's photos of like the Beatles doing poses from the manga, which is pretty wild. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Wow, the show notes are just writing themselves this week. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, did you see the next panel after the Osmonds one? There's that other guy. Yeah, the Shea guy. Yeah, yeah. He says, yeah. hey, just like having puppies. <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. Like the, the a mess is the wrong word. It's it's an interesting mix of like mature and immature. immature. <laughs> yeah, maybe innocent. It might be a better word for that, but innocent content. Yeah, Deb, do you prefer future over dawn? I think future is more visceral. Mm. If there's a way to put it, it's it really like dawn is basically about prehistoric Japan. Mm-hmm. Or like mm-hmm. kind of caveman type stories, right? So you'll see just like human drama and things like that, but it's set in such a way where you know the, the man's greatest dangers are the weapons are spears and arrows, and you're afraid of animals eating you or landslides, you know, covering you and things like that. Fire. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then there's things like he'll do things like even when it's a really bloody or a scene of dismemberment, like on page 300 of Dawn, where the, the warrior is slicing a, a, a horse into bits. It just looks like he just, he cut Gumby, Gumby's horse. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no blood and guts. It's just, oh, slash. And then all these pieces are like falling apart like it's a doll. Yeah. So He looks like Bond Clay from One Piece. Yeah. <laughs> separated. Exactly. Those pages are so interesting too, because he does it all as hatching. He doesn't even do it them as like, it's all like, and it's so experimental. Like you, we're going to put these pages in the show notes, but basically he just uses hatching to sort of outline 3d forms set against light rather than illustrating in a sort of a more cartoony style. Like there's still little details, cartoony details laid over top of the hatching, but it's so weird. It's just like just those two pages and nowhere else in the book. Oh yeah, uh, that he yeah. does this like totally different style. Oh, it's did you see that? That two ten and two eleven. Yeah, two ten. Yeah, yeah, two ten to two eleven, where he's like slashing through the horse and stuff like that, almost like they're paper or they're not even three D. Like it's maybe it was just such a violent scene that he was just trying to figure out a way to draw it that wouldn't get you know mom's groups PTA groups upset at him. But yeah, it just the style yeah. on the pages after and before are totally different. Like he really is just pushing the envelope. I feel like in everything that he's doing in a story like this, like the, the seriousness of it is so far removed from something else that he would have done at the time. I don't know. But if you even look at like, at, from an art point of view, if you like, say, look at page 131 of Dawn, if you mm. squint, the balance of the blacks and the whites is pretty neat. Is that the, um, uh, the ship on the, the black sea? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really nice panel. Mm-hmm. Really and nice the page, page with all the ships approaching over the water. So, so here we get. We're, I think we're at a point where it's like I, I do want to get into future just real quick because yeah. Deb, I didn't get your your take on it. The thing uh, that resonated with me most when I read it, like, yeah, I've been 
I've been inundated with apocalypse stories about the end of the world since I was a boy. So the message was like, yeah, I know we're, we're screwing up the planet. Like there's not a lot I can <laughs> do about it. I'm 12, but we get it. Captain planet. Right. But the thing that really struck me that I really loved. And then I got to see sort of the influences of that in the work of Keiko Takamiya and uh, Leiji Matsumoto is just how beautiful these like full page drawings of like skyscrapers and these sci-fi buildings and the things that he's doing with storytelling in those pages that kind of blew me away. That's the thing that like resonated most with me was that, yeah, sometimes the storytelling is a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's for a different, I'm going to just say it, it's a different level of sophistication and what we come to expect from manga. I think he was inventing stuff and now we're out of place, but <laughs> the art was like, I still don't see things that are, that formally interesting a lot of the time what did you think yeah when i compare the two like just flipping through them right now i can see why you pick future Mm. future is much more experimental yeah as far as like what he does with paneling and shading and and storytelling it's really it's really ambitious and it's it has a lot of things about him about his storytelling is quite dark and while trying to be hopeful at the same time. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm looking at like page 212 of Future, where there's this scene where the characters are dancing together. Even though in a lot of ways, he, he does a lot of heartbreak and a lot of, you know, women, women done wrong, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. He does, every now and then, show scenes of just pure love and beauty mm. that, that are amazing. He it's I, I struggle to understand what how much of this is him and how much of this was an uh, assistant helping him mm. because it's so it's so distinctly on one hand I want to say self indulgent mm. <laughs> yeah I can see it that. absolutely is and on the other hand I think it's ambitious and bold it's yeah. it's a hard it's a diff, it's a dense read mm-hmm. it's it's difficult because he does experiment with the storytelling so much. Like there's a scene on page 82, 83 of future where they're talking around a long table and the angle is just bizarre. Yeah. That whole sequence where all the, like the mayor and everyone are talking and it's all these long vertical panels of people around a table, but shot from a bird's eye view of, of the table (laughs) looking at the ceiling with the character sort of around it is like, yeah, that's crazy that he's just like, Oh, what's a way I could do this that hasn't been done before. And I think that that's, that's Do you think it's successful? I think it's successful because of the stylistic stuff that Chip pointed out. Because if if everything was drawn in like a super photorealistic way, and then he and then he you know really fucked up a hand, or he really fucked up that like weird you know bird's eye or or worm's eye view, or he really you know whatever, it would stand out a lot more. But there's something about this that it really is comics like it's comics comics it's like the drawing just needs to be good enough to convey what he wants he what he wants to convey as the storyteller and there's never a point where i don't understand what he's trying to convey even in the things that are nearly abstract like there's a couple of pages in here a couple of sequences that are like so sci-fi and in such a different direction than Kirby too, which I think is really interesting that they are nearly just abstract. Like here's this cityscape at the top of page 108. And it's like, it's just lines, man. Like it's just jagged lines and it's meant to convey 
like uh, there's a rhythm of like energy and movement and like this busy society overlaid on top of these like perfect vertical buildings to show that like order and chaos it's like existing in harmony and it is just like it is nearly abstract but in the context it's like oh he's setting the scene of the city or oh he's doing this or oh he's doing that and it's just but like i think there's a there's a page here where, where they're in the laboratory and they discover the doctor's like emergency escape rocket for the first time I think he designed it just so he could have this cool panel layout. Like I think that <laughs> I've never seen anything where I was like, I think the design of this rocket came as he was drawing the page. Cause he had an idea of what he wanted the page to look like with these strong diagonal lines. And so he came up with a rocket design that would just have diagonal after diagonal after diagonal so that he could do this illustration of it and then figure out what it looks like from a different angle later. And I think that that's really it's a different kind of comics making and it's, it is, I guess, ambitious is the word I want to use. I think that there's just like maybe unrivaled ambition in Tezuka's work. And I see it now. Like I see people that pick up that same spirit and I see people that pick it up at a higher degree, honestly, of like actual artistic acumen. Like mm-hmm. I think of someone like Takahiko Onoi who did, uh, oh. who's just doing Vagabond and real as someone who is, incredibly ambitious like like mind-blowingly ambitious in what he wants to do like he'll he's another person i got i was lucky enough to get to interview him and i'm like in this section you changed from doing a more traditional style to like a sumi ink style and in this section you did photorealistic watercolor art why did you do that and he's like i was bored and i wanted to do something different (laughs) and that's it that's his whole thing it's just like keeping himself interested keeping pushing himself you know forward as a mangaka and that's really what I get from Tezuka, just like this unlimited ambition that keeps going and going and going until, frankly, and unfortunately, he just died. He died with a pencil in his hand. At age 60. At and age 60. When I was in my 20s, that sounded old. And now that I'm in my 50s, that sounds young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be what, honest. <laughs> what was he working on when he died? Phoenix. Probably, probably Phoenix. Really? He yeah. never finished it. Yeah. I was going to say, like, if you look on Phoenix Future page... 280 and dawn page 15 it is the same image just arranged yeah. differently it's the That's same cool. image of the of the, the the warrior capturing the phoenix is wrestling with her mm-hmm. and so it's it's arranged differently this is future mm-hmm. and this is dawn okay yeah so you could actually read these two volumes and they'd fold into each other almost yeah mm. That's really cool. I didn't realize that until I was, thanks to Chip, had to compare both at the same time. <laughs> Truly <laughs> beloved. So yep, there's there a, you go. There's a there's a map at the back in the back of all of the volumes of Viz's Phoenix, which is titled "A Journey Through Time and Space: An Overview of the Complete Phoenix Saga," and it actually shows the order that the stories were written and the order that the stories were published and what their titles are. So the first one in 1967 was Dawn, and it takes place in 240 to 270 AD. And then the next story he worked on was Future, which was also in 67 and then into 68. And that takes place in 3404 AD. So yes, it's worth noting that the 350-page Dawn and the 280-page Future were all completed in about a year and a half, in addition to all of the other work he was doing at the time. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that Dawn is the earliest set Phoenix story, and Future is the latest set Phoenix story. And you know, if you get to the end of Phoenix, you see why it's the last one. But 
as he continued to tell Phoenix stories, he sort of just kept moving the dial forward and backward a little bit. So, you know, it goes from 240 AD to 320 AD to 720 AD to 937 AD, where he's telling these different stories of how humanity is progressing and how the Phoenix myth moves. But he's also moving backwards every other story, like starting at the end of time and then moving to 2577 and then, you know, the 2400s, the the 2300s, you know, and then finally the last story that was, oh, Sun was the last story and that was set in 663 and in 2008. Which is still was still in the future in 1967. It is still very retro future, which is pretty fun. Yeah, he was trying to go for like a zigzag, like he went far, far past the far future, and then would zigzag in smaller, like, and eventually his goal was at the end he was going to meet at in the present, mm-hmm. and he never got there. No, that's how ambitious he was. That he worked for how many years on this and had this grand plan in mind. Even though I think, as Chip was saying. Every step along the way, he seemed to be making up as he was going along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was looking at that page, the Worm's Eye View meeting that Chris mentioned. Yeah. And first, it's preceded by like the kind of drawings that I love, like super huge sci-fi buildings with tons of windows, you know? Yeah. But I think the storytelling is interesting because he's, it's almost like a way to save on a deadline because oh, the central figure is sort of this <laughs> clip art of the table. And then he's just drawing sort of like from the shoulders up of all the characters. But at the same time, the placement of all the characters is really deliberate. Like if someone speaks at the top of the table, they're always at the top of the table. And eventually when the scene changes, it's sort of like when when you realize like you're you're watching like a one shot in a movie or a long shot in a movie. Mm-hmm. It's that moment when the camera picks up and follows one of the characters as he takes a phone call. So it's this mm-hmm. cool mix of like practical, but also like winging it, like trying something different. Yeah. No, sounds good. I'd like to read it one day. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe in time for episode two. I I really do think yeah, I and I swear to I'm not picking on you, Chip. I love you. You know I love you. <laughs> but like Future is the reason one I picked because it was the one that Viz released first. So it's actually got a bunch of bonus material in the back. It's got a sort of an af- an explanation of the Phoenix series uh, written by Viz. It's got an afterword written by the president of Tezuka Productions, which really does try to put it in context of like what Phoenix was in the context of Tezuka's career. It's got a note from Tezuka, which, and the note from Tezuka is perfect because it ends with, please don't criticize this until you've read all the volumes or I won't be able to hear it. And you're just sort of like, <laughs> it's yeah. very clear. Like he had no time for critics, uh, which I think is funny. And then finally, there's an interview with the translators who have actually, who actually did a, a, an original rough translation of this series in the 1970s. They basically got photocopies. They went to Tezuka Productions in Japan and were like, we think Phoenix is really good. It needs to be everywhere. So they did hand, like whited out and hand lettered photocopies on top of Japanese photocopies of their translations of Phoenix officially by Tezuka and then tried to shop it around, including to Marvel Comics at the time. Hmm. There's a great anecdote at the back of this. And the Marvel Comics at the time was like, no, who would want this? This is crazy. And it was just this idea that like, you know, we do like the name Phoenix. So yeah, (laughs) it's the seventies for you. But uh, no, it was a really, it was a really interesting interview with Frederick Schott. And what's the other gentleman's name? Sorry. Jared Cook. Oh, Jared Cook. Yeah. I, I highly, yeah. If you've got it to get a chance, I highly recommend reading that interview, but it's just this, it's, it's interesting because this publication of Phoenix future, which was done as a standalone with no volume on it, by the way, which would have made it really easy. 
started Tezuka Boom, started the Tezuka Boom. It was the success of this that caused Phoenix to get published, which caused Buddha to get picked up by Vertical, which caused basically the Tezuka Renaissance that we had in the 2000s. So that was ultimately brought to an end by DMP. And no, I will not go into detail about that. Like it's it's interesting because Tezuka people tried to publish Tezuka. Viz published Adolf, the five volume Adolf series in the eighties, under the Cadence Books line. They published it was Message to Adolf then, right? And they published two volumes of Blackjack, just two like ra- random volumes of Blackjack, and stopped because it just didn't sell. It was not. It was too cartoony. It was too old looking. People wanted cutting edge manga like Rumiko Takahashi. <laughs> so I think that that's I think it's fascinating that this book sort of did well enough that it spurred interest in Tezuka because it was mature pick and whatever. And so that it was a perfectly crafted reason why I wanted everyone to read this one first. But unfortunately, I'm a manga purist. You are a manga purist. You got to start so at the beginning. I wanted to start at the beginning with the volume that Tezuka did first. I will say that there's real beauty in Dawn. I'm actually been, I've been flipping through this just to remind myself because I read it a long time ago, maybe 15 years, maybe 10, 15 years. And like things like the mountainscape that he and Kazuka Productions, let's be honest, drew with the clouds and the volcano and, and yeah. coming out of it and things like that. The, the boats coming across the water, the inky black water with like all of these boats that are just sort of lit by torchlight. Really beautiful stuff. And I think that that, sh- it again, shows his innovation. I, I would say that I did feel let down by this book, by both books just by the constraints of the medium at the time. And I think that that's maybe what, what Chip and David were talking about, is that Tezuka came out of kids' manga, and kids' manga was basically all that existed for a really long time. Garo shook things up, but even the early Garo and Gekiga and the rental manga that was coming out, and this is, I just opened up a can of worms for myself for the show notes, I just realized by mentioning all those things in a row. But the short version is, these are people who are discovering that have done manga, that are discovering other media where stories are getting more mature and weirder and crazier. They're getting films after the war that are like dark cinematic films. They're getting the American cinema revolution in the 70s, and it's influencing back into manga and making it more mature. People are thinking, oh, I can tell this kind of story. And so as early works in that, I think that I'm kind of let down by this in a way that I'm not by later stuff, like like Hito or Apollo Song. So that's my take on this. I feel like we could just t- talk about Tezuka indefinitely. We're definitely going to have to come back and do another Tezuka in the future and read the same book this time. Uh, I actually uh. kind of like the discrepancy because it lets <laughs> us talk more about what Tezuka does and like what he's good at. Yeah. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an innovator in <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> because I think that Chip and I having opposite reactions to these books but like both being kind of into them i think Mm -hmm. says a lot about what tezuka does like the consistency of his work even the approach that he takes for his work because like flipping through dawn like there's a lot of storytelling in here that's like very much my speed and like Mm -hmm. situations and things like that there's like a joke about the japanese student riots with yes i saw that with the wolves (laughs) yeah which was like really timely in you know 1967 or whatever (laughs) he can't help himself he just can't Yeah, like there's such a broad spectrum of stuff that Tezuka was into and like pushing into the work that it kind of reminds me of like Jack Kirby's always the easy comparison. He's, you know, mm. God of Godfather of Godfather of manga, God of comics. Or I think he's more Wally Wood. This is. guy, I think Tezuka's yeah. more Wally Wood. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. 
Yeah. But they're both, you know, really productive, really clever, really talented at what they do. And also like they have stories that they want to tell that they want to tell their own way. Mm -hmm. I feel like, like if you look at page 308 in Dawn, where there's, it's this dramatic scene where this warrior's getting hit by arrows and then panel four is he's just a porcupine. Yeah. <laughs> and is that arrows. like a Benke joke or is it just an arrow joke? See, I don't know. I mean, like, and the thing with this book is that there are this, there are no translators in this, right? So not unlike mm. our, our friend, St. Young Men, this has none. <laughs> and I'm sure that if, and I'm, hi, Viz, if you ever put out another edition, I think it might be interesting if you did. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of cultural stuff. So that's we. So you should probably talk about that a little bit. These volumes, the uh, Phoenix, were all printed, and Deb and I are using print. David and Chip are using digital because they're out of print now. And it's interesting because of things like the lettering style is done in a sort of '90s way uh, or not early 2000s kind of a way. Let's say, although the sound effects are good, so there are no uh, translators' notes in this because. Viz's translation standard before was to fully translate things and localize them to make them be able to be understood without notes. And that's something that's gradually been changing in translation as things have gone forward. But maybe most importantly, these are flipped. These read the North American mm-hmm. orientation. And that actually came at the behest. My understanding from reading Frederick Schott's writings is that he cleared that with Tezuka while Tezuka was still alive. He felt that North Americans, Tezuka felt that North Americans would never want to read things in the Japanese orientation. So he worked with Schott to flip these, you know, stories when he was originally translating them. Obviously, that's what Viz chose to do when they were introducing this to an adult readership and an adult audience in the 2000s. And it's only been very, very recently that things have started to be published for an adult audience, especially in the Japanese reading order, uh, without the art having been digitally flipped or, in some cases, rearranged on the page. It speaks to the quality of his work that it could flip and I don't feel the flip. Yeah, It, yeah, it doesn't it really feel obvious good. to me. Mm. And that really makes me think about his panel layouts and things like that. Like Dawn looks much more rigid than Future. In Future, mm. word balloons break panel borders all the time. In Dawn, it looks much less common. Yeah, But there's also like everything's like boxed off, you know? Mm. Like the sound effects are really understated. Nothing's really exploding off the page, you know, as you demand it, true believer and that kind of style. Yeah, it is definitely an earlier work and you can see it. And I think that when we go back, uh, whatever Tezuka we choose next should be from much later in his career, because I think it's going to maybe blow Chip's mind to see how much, how far in some, certain ways he came as a cartoonist and how far and in ways in which he decided this is just how I draw now. It's <laughs> really good. Yeah. I think yep. every cartoonist should, should we talk about that. his cast of stars for this series, how they're all reincarnations or things like that? Mm. Yeah, it's you just opened a can of worms there because it's extra complicated for Phoenix. It's the usual star system. You want to talk about it? Yeah. So my understanding and Deb and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but hopefully I can wing this. Tezuka had a constellation. They called it something like that, where he drew certain characters repeatedly throughout his work. So there was like a guy that's a Tezuka guy who would show up in book one, book two, book three of whatever series under different names. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of like how there was, Jim Lee's Scott Summers is kind of similar to Jim Lee's like Bruce Wayne. Like there's like a commonality yeah. there. I think yeah. of it more like Christopher Guest movies. Mm, like I'm not like you, you'll have like Spinal Tap and then you'll have mm-hmm. Best in Show and it'll be different movies, but it'll have the same actors. Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as a kid, I was like, oh, that seems kind of like cheating. 
you know, because every drawing <laughs> should be new. As an adult, like who works in comics, I'm like, oh, I get it. Like this is do what you do very, very well, and it doesn't matter necessarily like the novelty of it if the execution's high enough. Hmm. So with this, does he actually use that in terms of reincarnation then? So that's where it gets complicated yeah. for this is that Surata, who I don't know what he's called in Dawn, but the guy Same. with the really Same. big nose yeah. that's like, he's actually a descendant of his, like his, you know, great, 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 great grandson is at the center of future. He's the doctor. And so Surata as a character keeps reappearing throughout the series and was probably going to be one of the sort of the keys to unlocking the final volume of, of Phoenix. And that kind of character does appear in Tezuka's other work. The big one in future is actually Rock, who's the sort of main antagonist in future, is absolutely Tezuka's foil. He's the bad guy in Tezuka's Metropolis, which also has an anime, you know, sunglasses wearing, ultra cool, but kind of a Maybe sometimes an anti-hero, but usually just a straight-up piece of shit who's just murdering people <laughs> nonstop. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting idea, and it gets more complicated when he does this like giant interconnected series of stories about reincarnation, and it's like, oh, is this a star system thing, or is this a character that was introduced and is supposed to be reincarnated? Or and yeah, if you if you want to go deep on Phoenix, you can go pretty deep. There's a lot of writing about Phoenix out there, and over 2000 pages of Phoenix stories for you to read. It's yeah, it's interesting too. And it's the one thing I was going to maybe save is, but I'll, since we're talking about it, Dawn, which you've read, which is the first Phoenix story wasn't actually even the first Phoenix story. He started Phoenix a number of times in the 1950s, trying to do this story that he had of this firebird of this idea of incarnate reincarnation throughout the ages. And those stories, those early works are collected in Phoenix volume 12, which is called early works or other works, depending on what language you get it in. But yeah, Phoenix, he tried it as a straight ahead shonen story. He tried it as shoujo four times. <laughs> so it's like wow. beautiful goddesses in ancient Greece. And, you know, I no, no shade whatsoever. I get reproduction was different then, but Viz's reproduction on volume 12 is awful. Like actually it's it was old materials. The scans that they were using or provided were not very good. The black and white volume 12 is is not great but i actually bought a japanese like hardcover of phoenix volume 12 and it's got these beautiful full color pages and then like the weird orange purple printing technology that japan used for some of their old manga so i'm going to include some photos in the show notes and maybe i'll show you guys on break some of what i'm talking about but it's just gorgeous like it's really beautiful stuff so yeah it's he tried and failed multiple times before we even get Don, but which is like I don't think is as good as future. And then the series actually just gets better by most critics estimations until about volume six or seven. Most it's mentioned, I think in the back of Phoenix future, like four or five times by different people. Yeah. The first five or six volumes of Phoenix are the best volumes of Phoenix. Like that was Tezuka at the height of his powers. And like, if you've read karma or you've read space, you will, you'll understand what I mean. I I was, I I I thought we were going to read space, honestly. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> because space is a, a short story. I mean, it's a half of the volume of volume three. It's, it's volume three. It's oh. like so. Volume three, Yamato and space is basically like uh, dawn and future in one book mm. because it's half prehistoric and half future. Oh, okay. But I think what's really interesting about and I, and I always think about this this thing about uh, Tezuka is there's a scene where. It's, there's the space story, 
there's like five people in different space pods. And some of them, he the way he tells the story is like, they're, they're kind of communicating with each other, but you can see as the time goes by that some of them lose communication with each other and they die and then they're, they're, but they're, and their panels go black, but they remain. Mm. There's some crazy formalist stuff yeah. in space that's really good. I think Ray Fox uh, did something yeah, similar thinking, like that, right? Was it One Soul? Yes. Yeah, One, one exactly. Soul does that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I, Ray I to Fox the- ripped off Tezuka. <laughs> <laughs> he credits Tezuka. Don't worry. But yeah, I think it's really, I think it was interesting that we read both volumes. I think that there's so much to talk about about Tezuka that the reason we're doing this episode is that I got shit and an email about having not done Phoenix and it had been 25 episodes of the podcast. <laughs> so it's like, all right, let's dig into, let's dig into some Tezuka. Let's do Let's see. And I think starting sort of at the beginning of his adult period is maybe the way to go. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in future. And I hope we get to read more Tezuka. Does anyone have any final thoughts that they'd like to add before the end of this part of the episode? Uh, Chip convinced yeah. me to read Dawn. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty That's good. A final thought. <laughs> and, and all of you convinced me to read Future. So good job, everyone. I think, we sh- I think once we finish reading all of Akira... Maybe we should do Phoenix as our little <laughs> series that we read one volume at a time. Our little series that we read. Our little classic, you know, the 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 canon, the the, the apex of the yeah. the manga art. Yeah. Of the Eventually, form. we will run out of Akira. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how did you just read episodes again. to worry about that? Yeah. yeah, read it in color this time. <laughs> Actually, yes. I was going to say too, like maybe my my thing about Tezuka, and this is going to sound like pure heresy. Mm. coming from a manga person he's not mm-hmm. my favorite manga artist <gasps> oh no mine either i mean i feel like sometimes he's like he's like Truffaut, you know he's like art art films like everyone loves you know these films they're amazing you know they're artistic they're so influential and yet it's it's it kind of i'm trying to struggling to think like is it like the blues where the original blues players sound very primitive but they influence all everything that came after them like rock and roll and mm-hmm. led zeppelin and heavy metal and everything like that right but you know at the time when it came up blues was just like earth shattering it's just like whoa what is this it's so different it moves me it's it's so raw and and it's you know influential like the joke that everyone says like there were 10 people at the sex pistols first show and all of them went on to start bands yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. so kind of i feel like it's a little bit like that it's 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 super inspiring if you're a comics creator it's super it was probably super inspiring at the time when it came out because he was doing something so dramatically different he in fact treasure island his first big success when he was in his 20s was so different than everything that came before it mm-hmm. because it was so much like a movie it was so dynamic and you look at treasure island you go, ain't no big deal but if mm-hmm. you look at the stuff that came before it you go oh he created a sea change yeah. He, yeah. He he changed the trajectory of the evolution of manga. And it's it's hard to appreciate that. People actually get mad at that now. They're like, what would a manga have been without Tezuka? And it's just like, well that you can't answer that question, but people that don't necessarily subscribe to Tezuka's school of of illustrate he had very strong thoughts on how comics should be made. Let's put it that way. But people who don't subscribe to that tend to be like, "Man, we could have gone in so many different directions, we could have whatever." And in the end manga did go in so many different directions. I mean, I think we've shown a lot of that on season one. I hope we get to show more of it on season two. But the fact that Garo existed 
and he had to change up his whole thing, <laughs> you know, kind of points to the fact that there were other people out there doing really important work. But that said, Gato, which was really popular at the time, which was running Kamui then, Legend of Kamui, that that Shiro Sampei looks a hell of a lot like Tezuka's work in the early days and then grows into something different. I think it's I think an interesting thing to say is Tezuka never had the benefit of reading Tezuka comics. And I yeah. think he would have been a different <laughs> artist if he had. But everyone else got to read Tezuka comics. And so that's the industry that we get because of it. But he was, yeah. you know, I think it's Rolundi at the top, isn't it? And he, was, oh, God, as yeah. everyone says, he was very competitive. Like when, when Akir came out, apparently he was shook. <laughs> 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 like, oh my God, it's the new dog in town. <laughs> yeah. I would love to see, like, who could be harsher, him or Alex Toth? Oh wow! Mm, yeah, so Toth was a crank, though. Like I think, <laughs> yeah, like reading reading Toth's like critique of Steve Rude stuff is just like, oh, you're like you're reaching for a lot here. Yeah, like, it, <laughs> that was it, brutal. you're just being mean at this point. And like, I don't, I don't know Tezuka and how he responded to other artists, but like, I can't imagine someone doing this style being super, super critical on that level. But don't you think also there are museums for Tezuka? He is yeah. treated like a national treasure. Yeah. Mm. And there is barely an archive of Steve, uh, Jack Kirby's work. He, yeah. he, you ha- he, you have to fight to get his name recognized as the inspiration for so many of the characters we love and we know and love today. So I feel yeah. like Tezuka and maybe, I don't know, I can't say this for a fact, but I, can't, I can feel like Tezuka and the, and the respect for this creator set up a, a foundation of respect for comics creators, not just comics characters. Well, yeah, because I mean, yeah, it's a little apples and oranges just because Kirby worked under the Marvel system where it wasn't necessarily about the creators. Yeah. Whereas uh, Tezuka, like it's a new Tezuka comic, you know, it wasn't a new Marvel comic. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, even traveling with, with, with the three of you and, Japan, like, was very evident that, oh, people followed creators, and there were museums and galleries dedicated to the creators, whereas in North America, there just there just wasn't during that time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's smarter people than me that have probably made this argument, but Tezuka always struck me as more of an Eisner, who, like, mm-hmm. he didn't yeah. Yeah. work in the Marvel or DC system. He set up a third system like that was not Marvel or DC. That was the Tezuka system. And that model actually really became the model for comics in Japan for most most things like the idea of there's being this like lead guy with like assistants working under him and you and you become an assistant, you become a better illustrator. And then Tezuka started all these magazines where you can go on to debut to like make your comics. So it's like it's not like you're just working in the trenches forever for a corporation. You're working in the trenches for this dude who was apparently not always really nice to the people that work with him, but also provided like that next step for your career as well. It's like, okay, you're good enough. Here you go. Go debut. And we don't have that. Like there's no there's no longevity. Like the fact that the fact of the matter is growing up I couldn't read Jack Kirby comics. They, like there weren't reprints. There were barely reprints. We've it's only it's only been in the last like twenty years of comics retail that even reprinting things in graphic novel <laughs> of our own comics history in North America has been a thing. So yeah. for the idea that like Japan has had seventy years of in print Tezuka comics, 
And then everything that came after, like the big hits, the influential works, generally either stayed in print or were bought back into print periodically. And we just didn't have that history. And it's like, it's not just recognizing individual creators. It's not just recognizing ways of working. It's the fact that we didn't we didn't respect our own history, even within the medium. Like there would be people that would like archive things. And that's how we have the drawn quarterly <laughs> Walton Skeezix collections, the, the gasoline alley collections, because even the people like the publishers that were like the gasoline alley publishers, King C- feature syndicate doesn't have records of those early strips. All that shit disappeared. Mm-hmm. Like no one was keeping records. It was an ephemeral thing. So sorry, I could, I am heated about this, <laughs> but yeah, it is shocking shocking to me that i got to work in comics retail as we tried to right some of the very many wrongs <laughs> that were there like just like oh there's kirby omnibuses now i mean it wasn't trying to right many wrongs it was recognizing that there was money to be made in it mm. you know Touché. and sometimes that's the kick like, in the ass that's all it is like need. yeah like no like uh, i mean north american comics were always just disposable like to the point where the art was disposable, like Marvel threw out the art. Yeah. Well, the same like, thing was true of manga, honestly. Yeah. yeah. But, but they clearly collected it far earlier than mm. North American. Tezuka kept a lot of his work, but Tezuka also redrew a lot of his work. That's the other thing I didn't mention. So Dawn in particular, I got to see a really cool thing when I was in Japan one time at the Tezuka Museum, where it was an exhibition of how Tezuka was kind of crazy about going back and fixing his own work he would constantly every new edition of work he would redraw like he was the yeah he was the original george lucas in that regard he would redraw pages so you, i don't know chip we didn't really talk about it but you know that like weird little icon that's kind of like a pig that looks like it's got patches and stuff on it that showed up throughout dawn they talked about it as like a plant or something like that it's got like a pig mm-hmm. nose so that's Tezuka, how he used to draw himself. He used to draw himself as this weird Franken-pig situation. I'll put the actual name of it in the show notes. It was That happened so much more throughout Dawn. And even sec- sequences where he would come into the story, like, all right, now here's Tezuka talking about the story that you're reading. Drawn as this weird pig character explaining what was going on to younger readers. And in Dawn in particular, I got to see the sequences where they redrew whole sections of that to like update it to get rid of the pig character and make it more official that it was like Tezuka standing in, but also nice. things like, Oh, <laughs> we have a different understanding of what caveman wore now. So they redrew all the caveman outfits and things like that based on like new, you know, finds and things. He was relentless about redrawing his stuff and not letting his old work being reproduced without his careful eye. So treasure Island, the, the book that Deb mentioned, the original version of treasure Island was out of print almost since its original printing. And they just, just reprinted the original version as a, as a two volume, I think Shin Rakajima and yeah, it's a treasure Island. And then the other one, uh, they re- reprinted the original version because Tezuka's dead. And he's like, he can no longer stop them from doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so you can actually go and look at the original version and compare it to the, the the official version that was released that he went back and redrew a bunch of stuff on. So yeah, I sorry, there's this is again Tezuka stories for days and days and days, but it's just this idea of he didn't consider these things disposable. He considered yeah. them art that had to be perfected that he had to go back into. For better and for worse, I think. You know, a lot of changes were good, some were bad, and I'll put some sh- examples in the show notes because I bought the exhibition book, so I've got images. Yeah, I think it's pretty. I think it says a lot about where we are now. I like that things are being better preserved. I like that things are more 
there the works available. And if it's commerce that had to do it, then it was something because it wasn't going to get done otherwise, unfortunately. Yeah. So anyway, that's, I hope, I don't think that's the, the least upbeat final thought to go out on, but it's pretty friggin' close. I don't know. Phoenix future. I think it's real good. Go read it, chip. <laughs> All right. I will. <laughs> Fine. God, get off my back. Maybe we can bookend it. With- we'll go back and we'll read Dawn and then you can read future and we'll have like another talk about, about Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Perfect. There you go. You got 25 weeks to read Phoenix to the future. We'll see you then. <laughs> You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome to another Manga Blind Date. This segment is brought to you by Viz Media, who sent us a book to check out. None of us had read it before, so we're just going into it blind. Today, our book is Censor by Jinji Ito. Censor is, well, first of all, Jinji Ito is like one of the best-selling manga creators in America today. And not because he writes any particular series, it's because he just writes damn good horror manga. He draws very detailed stories, very interesting, very provocative horror stories. So this is his latest. It's called Censor, and it's a one and done. It's based, uh, well, how do we describe it? You want to you give it a shot, Chris? <laughs> a woman walks alone at the foot of Mount Sengoku. A man appears saying he's been waiting for her and invites her to a nearby village. Surprisingly, the village is covered in hair-like volcanic glass fibers, and all of it shines a bright gold. At night, when the villagers perform their custom of gazing up at the starry sky, countless unidentified flying objects come raining down on them, the opening act for the terror about to occur. Censor! Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> I, I assume you all read it, so let's get started. Who wants to start? Yeah, I read it. I read it. Yeah, did you ah. read this one, buddy? <laughs> Censor is not... Did not start the way I was expecting. I I got to be honest. I got about two chapters in and thought it was like, oh, is this a dud from Junji Ito? I'm not into it. And then the real weird stuff started happening with the 
strangulations and the the Junjito hallmarks and the gross things and people getting murdered. And I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Here we're back to we're back to Junjito. <laughs> I actually went into this completely blind. I thought it was a short story collection for some reason, and it is one long story that sort of takes place from different viewpoints throughout it. And it's uh, yeah, it, it's a weird one. And I think I liked it by the end. I actually really appreciated how. I really appreciate it in this one just how gross Junji Ito draws people, even when they're not like taken over by demons or whatnot. They all kind of have like an emaciated grossness to them that is really lovely in a horror manga. And then when they do turn evil, inevitably, or are murdered or have the life sucked out of them, they just like, it's like a slider that starts at halfway and he just turns up to 11, which I thought was really good. (laughs) So yeah, there's all the things I like in Junji Ito manga in this one by the end, but it does start slower than I was expecting. I like the slowness of the start. Like, uh, like you, I went into this blind, obviously that's the name of the segment. And so I also thought it was going to be, oh, okay, they're, they're just like these short stories and maybe volcanic hair ties it together. But then once you, once you start to realize, oh, actually he's telling this in chapters, even though they are very distinct stories in each chapter, I thought that was, that was a really smart way to kind of subvert expectations. But I think everyone's going to go into this reading it and, and, and fall into that trap, unless someone like us has told them otherwise. <laughs> I, I, I kind of had that same feeling as you did. When I read chapter one, I thought, is that it? That's a really mediocre short story from Junji Ito. Mm. And then then I and guys like, oh, he's this girl keeps coming back. And mm-hmm. oh, this this village keeps coming back. There's still uh think threads that part of the plot, but there's still like a thread running through all of the chapters. Mm. And sometimes it goes off on these weird tangents and but he does still have the ability to to sneak up on you. You open you open the next page and go, "Whoa, what is that?" <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like, "Oh, I didn't expect that." Like when the the psychiatrist's son turns into something. <laughs> the universe. Yeah, it goes. So it goes really. He goes really big with it. Like that. That's the fascinating thing. Like you know, it starts off really kind of small and just kind of delicate, weird little story about this woman in this village and and the tiniest things you can really think of, which are these strands of hair. And then it goes as big as, oh, no, it's about, like, the universe. Like, mm. this is this is actually a massive kind of story featuring all these kind of tiny stories nestled within it. I was really surprised, but I guess I shouldn't be by now, that he decided to tie Christianity into it as well. Because, yeah. like, he's getting into these big, like, Cthulhu, like, other dimensional, unknowable space monsters and like these different concepts about knowledge and unending knowledge and things like that. And all of a sudden it's like, and then there was this Christian mercenary who, or mercenary. missionary, there you go. Missionary. <laughs> you know, leave mercenary a Freudian right. slip there. There's your, there's your, I see where your head's at. <laughs> Christian missionary in Japan, which was very illegal at the, at the time. Who's like preaching this gospel and like ties this into the space stuff, which is like, Whoa, that's big. That's some that's some Eva big brain right there. Evangelion big brain right there. And I thought that that was like I was a little unsure of it, but then by the end I was like, yeah, no, this is this is really reminding me of Phoenix Future actually. <laughs> that was so weird that we read Phoenix Future by Osamu Tezuka and this story back to back because 
man, in terms of getting big and metatextual and spacey and whatnot, these two are very similar in that regard in terms of where they end up versus where they start. I don't know. It was compelling. I definitely was like moved through the story and I was trying to, I wanted to figure out what the mystery was. So that's, you know, that's pretty cool. I think I like Tezuka. There were some moments where like I could see like bits of humor, like on page 40, the main character, the girl does a Naruto run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a there's a part where it's like oh you know like the akashic records and it's it's like the clouds turn into like brains and it's like and he goes yes it's worse than the internet cloud and it's like oh Junji ito <laughs> really <laughs> it's funny i actually screen grabbed that i'm like oh i want to post this on twitter as a joke i'm like oh wait no this is an advanced copy what am i doing yeah yeah you're getting a lot of trouble yeah yeah <laughs> that book's not out yet <laughs> But I swear, by the time this review comes out, we'll be posting all kinds of spoilers. It'll oh, be yeah. great. I'm curious, because this is your first Junji Ito chip. What did you think of the art? It's not my first, because I did read Uzumaki ah. in a previous life. And I also read his book of short stories that debuted at TCAF that year. He was there. Smashed. The orange one or the blue one, Shiver? Uh, I, I can't recall which one. It's on my bookshelf at home. But mm. I I like... His stuff like 90% of the time and you can kind of see in the drawing what he really enjoys and what his kind of payoffs are. Mm. Like there's a lot of times during this where I'm just like, he's not super into doing the backgrounds. Like he puts a lot of detail into them, but there's not, there's not a big sense of depth there as there is with his, his actual characters. But then when you get into like the gross stuff with the characters, like the scene with with the guys all of his senses kind of moving out of his head and expanding he clearly he's known for it and he's really good at it and it always pays off so mm. when i hit that scene i was just like oh yeah no this is this is good jinji ito yeah <laughs> nice yeah all right now that you've read sensor i can't ask you if you would go on a second date because this is a one and done but i'm going to ask you after reading sensor would you read more jinji ito me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I can see myself maybe at some point being like, do I need to read more Junji Ito? But then when I read it, I'm just like, oh, yeah, no, that was great. Like, I can see I can see why people kind of keep going back to him as a creator. It's remarkably comfortable. It's even even bad Junji Ito. Like, I've read some stories that I think are just like, oh, actual stinkers. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dissolving That's classroom. <laughs> That's why they're in 300-page hardcovers where you could just flip to the next story if you didn't like this one. And I did, yeah, I was kind of let down by how the first one ended because I thought it was the newest short story. But when you see that the character recurs in future stories and then builds and builds and builds, I think it was a matter of maybe if my if I had a little bit different expectations, like if I hadn't gone in completely blind, I think the story would have grabbed me more from the beginning. And it's because I trust Jinjito that I'm just going to keep reading Jinjito. Like even before I got here, he's already proven himself as a creator to me. That's always worth at least a look, you know, and it's, this is the next volume from of work from him. It is amazing that we're getting basically everything that he does in English. Like there aren't manga publishing programs like this. It's even if you go to the Viz website, his work is listed under Junji Ito. It's not listed under titles like yeah. every other single manga <laughs> on that website is listed, including Tezuka, you know, which I guess they've only got Phoenix in print, but like Junji Ito has become his own category, his own sort of force. So I think that means, you know, check out his work. I will say that 
there's always stuff that's going to make people feel uncomfortable. I think the cult situation that is not totally divorced from some of the Japanese cult situations that are going on even till today and historically for the last 20, 30 years might give people pause, but it's in a horror movie. Like, like it's in a horror book. It's pretty clearly defined as being a problem. So uh, <laughs> I think that's the past there. But yeah, I'm always going to give Junji a look and I'm glad I got to see Censor a few months before everybody else did. <laughs> How about you, Deb? I, I, I like it. I mean, obviously, I, but I still love Uzumaki the best. I still think that's the pinnacle of his work, and I hope we get to read it on Manga Splitting someday. Mm. I read this book and thought, wow, this is his greatest hits all in one book. It's got, it's got <laughs> yeah. the pretty girl. It's got the body horror. It's got like the, the ominous skies. It's got the, the villagers beset by horror. It's got some like weird uh, things that happen in the end, and pe- people get their comeuppance. It's like, you, I mean, if you read a lot of Jinji Ito, you'll, you'll see a lot of, a lot of the familiar beats. Mm. Kind of like, I guess like if you listen to the Beatles, you go, oh yeah, they're using that riff again. You know? Mm. <laughs> kind of like that. It's not a, it's not a bad Jinji Ito book. I think it's, I've read worse. I think mm. it's actually pretty good. I'll, I still stand behind Uzumaki, but it's, if you like Jinji Ito, I don't think you'll be disappointed by this one. Yeah. All right. Censor by Jinji Ito is available now from Viz Media in print and in digital. Go to bit.ly slash censor podcast to read a free preview. And we're back. Hopefully that was a informative and educational piece of advertising content. Wow. Informative and educational. I'm hoping. What what more can you ask? (laughs) Instead of just being sad about workplace safety injuries that I keep getting whenever I listen to our own. Why do you get that? I don't get that. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, I don't even have a job. Like, Stop, t- stop telling me about the WSIB. People getting there, losing their hands. I don't want to hear it. If 90% so. of accidents happen in the home and we're all working from home now, like, something's oh, got to be done. Yeah, yeah this is still warning me. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for a reader Q&A, but this time it's not exactly a question we were asked. Back before we had questions, Deb was putting together some of the things people were talking to us about on Twitter, and she came up with this tweet from Otaku News. And the tweet was, we've run out of space at Otaku News headquarters. So it got us thinking, what criteria do you use for your collection when you need to decide when you need to have a call? We don't want to get rid of anything, but sadly, you've run out of physical space. How do you decide what meets the grade to keep? And I picked this question this week because Deb has been doing these really, this like two, these two cool threads on Twitter this week. One of them is, what's your favorite out of print book that you wish someone would bring back? And what's your favorite rarity that you have that uh, is like a really rare piece of manga that you could never let go of? And I thought, oh, this would be kind of a cool thing because I didn't participate in that thread because I don't Twitter. I was like, yeah, I want to participate in this. So I thought maybe we could go around and talk about, first up, how do we decide what we're going to keep when we're culling books when we're getting rid of stuff? And I think that's something that, you know, from a manga perspective, we could speak to. But even even Chip has to decide what he's going to get rid of so he could still participate in this question. Well, I'll, I'll go first then because I, I keep a pretty lean bookcase. Single bookcase. Yeah, before, before mm-hmm. I pandemic hit i actually after we got back from japan like when we were in japan i had like i think i mentioned it before i had like an existential crisis from that trip when we went into the one shop and it was just full of manga 
like hmm. like just full secondhand manga. And I was like, there's so much put out in the world. I'm looking at all the toys and all the little nostalgic toys and statues and games and stuff in that one shop. It gave me a uh, uh, chest tightness that <laughs> so many people worked on so many things that are just like some cases art, some cases garbage and landfill. Mm. And it messed with my head. And, you know, my, my, my wife pointed out to me later on, she's like, Oh, that's you're, you're doing the Marie Kondo. That's what you're doing. <laughs> now that you're back, you're deciding what makes the cut and what doesn't, what sparks joy. So I looked at my shelf and I was cutting down from two bookcases to one. And I was like, all right, which of these are art? Which of these are actually art? Art that I look at and I'm like, this is beautiful. <laughs> and so it was, it, was a, it was a beauty test. Like I only kept things that I, I felt were beautiful or I felt I needed to hold on to for work. And that was it. Mm. So I, I got, I got, I got myself down to one one b- small IKEA bookshelf, which is uh, I know I know I'm a rarity. I can't in even imagine comic book circles. <laughs> is it a tall bookshelf or like the half size? Um, it's it's tall and narrow. Okay, so it's not even as full like a full width Billy or anything like that. Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's not a Billy. Yeah, and I just mailed home my Akira hardcovers. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably costs as much as it would have to buy it. (laughs) Which were sent to me here. And when I went to the post office, I I just brought the box in as it was and scratched out like the labels. And then I wrote, I wrote my home address on it. I wrote it kind of sloppy and I didn't put a return address on it because part of me is hoping it doesn't make it. (laughs) Because I I have nowhere to put them and I don't want to go through the decision process again. Under the bed. Under the bed. Under the bed. Out of sight, out of mind, man. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, that's me. Deb, what's your approach? Do you get rid of manga? Yeah, do you? I need to get rid of manga. Like, I've been given manga by you, but I feel like it's because you had multiple copies of the same book. Uh, I guess if, when I I do give up, get rid of manga, it is Mm -hmm. not at the same rate in which I get it. Mm. in which creates the problem. Usually my criteria is when I'm, when I'm forced to make a decision is do I love it enough to want to read it again and again and again? Yeah. That's, that's criteria one. That means it stays in the main bookshelf. It's, it has a prominent place in, and I never, ever want to get rid of it. The second criteria is how difficult will this be to replace if I did get rid of it <laughs> and I needed to get it again? Yeah. That's a real strong one. Because there are some books that I don't feel necessarily super passionate about, but because of what I do, I write about manga a lot, I sometimes have to do research, that sometimes I'll keep something because it's historically significant and difficult to get again. Phoenix is a great example of that. It's, It's super out of print. It's by a significant creator. And even though I don't go back and want to read it again and again, I would be um, at a loss if I got rid of it. However, I would not be against getting rid of all my current copies if Viz put out a new edition (laughs) and I could start all over again. (laughs) Hello, I love you, Viz. Please. Please. That's kind of my main thing. And then, you know, I get a lot of comp copies and there's some manga that I I get in a box and I'll just never even crack it open and go like, 
well, that's a, that looks pretty lame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see the Usually it's the isekai titles that have like more than six words in its title. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, sometimes I regret that because like, for example, there was a book called Horimiya, which I looked at and go, well, this looks like a lame little romantic comedy. I'm not even going to read it. And then the anime came out like this year. And it's like, it's actually a really charming little romantic comedy about a girl <laughs> named Hori and a guy named Mia who are actually the opposites, but they really like each, they're really good for each other. And I'm like, well, hell's bells. I got rid of those. <laughs> Sucks to be me. Hell's bells. <laughs> so yeah, I I guess that's my creator, and I guess I should use it more often. Hmm. How about you, David? I'm curious. Mine is so I've actually only moved like four times as an adult, but I've had I've owned so many books as an adult that it feels like a lot more. Yeah. So I'm ruthless at this point. Like I've gone past the point where it's like I'm keeping only books I love, only books I'll reread, only books that are like classics. Now it's like, have I touched this book in two years? How much dust is on the book? Because if I'm yeah. not rereading it, like there's no reason to keep it, I feel. Yeah. But there are certain exceptions where it's like, oh, this has sentimental value. Mm. Like years ago, I got Wildcats 3.0 bound into two hardcovers because uh, <laughs> I love wow. the series. Yeah. And then as soon as I did that, they announced the reprint of the series, which didn't happen for like eight years. But yeah. Yeah, that's, that's my luck. But I kept those hardcovers because even though they're kind of obsolete now, like they're definitely a worse version of the book. Like I like having made those hardcovers. Yeah, that's a very personal thing. Yeah. 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 So now it's my collection's like a weird mix of stuff that I can't get digitally. I have two bookcases, by the way, like the standard IKEA width. Stuff I can't get digitally, stuff I actually worked on, and stuff that I don't know if I could replace if I lost it. Like I've got like old Viz graphic novel style manga too. I feel that so hard. (laughs) So we actually, we talk about, we talk, we manga-splain to each other with video on usually. And my video is always just like me against a backdrop of books because every room in my house has a bookshelf in it. Like every, like except the bathroom, because that's a little gross, but even cookbooks (laughs) in the kitchen. And then there are four tall 80 centimeter billies in this room plus two four by four expedites and a bunch of other shelving that things are like jammed into and it's almost all it's almost all books like let's be honest like there's one drawer of t-shirts i think that are not (laughs) don't fit me anymore but other than that it's all my matsumoto Matsumoto t-shirts from uniqlo by the way i was just thinking about what i actually have kept because still half the number of shelves that we used to have and it's crazy that i feel like I listen to you guys talking and it's like, what are the things that have deep, that are beautiful? What are the things that have deep sentimental value? What are the things that, you know, I haven't looked at that I am, that are, that I'm, that that you have to be ruthless about. And it's like, I don't know how to take that last step because it's, I've still clearly got (laughs) too much book, too many books here, but it's like Persepolis was important to me. Mouse is important to me. And I'm probably, I don't need to read those over and over again, but there's nothing, there's no worse feeling than having someone come over and being like, oh, I've never read that. That sounds great. And not having the book to lend them. I hate that. Uh, I hate that. So <laughs> How much. often does that happen? It used to happen a lot more than now when it's COVID-19. So yeah, maybe yeah. that's my, my excuse. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with artists for so many years that I have like a ton of signed stuff. Like at the end of the day, I know that even if I got rid of everything that didn't have sentimental uh, attachment, I'd still have like too many scare quotes books. So it's hard to make that last step. But I will say that since COVID started, I've probably gotten rid of 
I don't know what this is in numbers, but like 12 double diamond boxes of books out of my house. So that's like, oh, I don't yeah. know, like 40 manga fits in one of those. And so manga, North American comics, et cetera. And it's still just the tip of the iceberg. Guys, like you can see, there's just still too many books. But my husband also is, we both are working books and avid readers. And so he's got four bookshelves almost of as well. Oh my God. That he's already pared down as far as, like he held a book sale that he like started and had other people get just to get rid of his own books. And there's still like four or five boxes of them in the house. So yeah, like, I don't even want to get rid of books some days when on other days I do feel suffocated by them. So I think what I'm going to do is take your advice. If thing, something is not beautiful, does not inspire great, you know, if it doesn't desire or nostalgia, yeah. if it doesn't spark joy, I'm going to get rid of it. But even then, like I've made real mistakes in my getting rid of books. I'm making one right now because I know I don't like black sad or not black sad. I like black sad. Okay. I don't like blackjack. Tezuka's blackjack. And we talked mm. about this a couple and maybe in the Frankenfran episode. I think it is interesting, but there's so many things about blackjack that I just don't care for. <laughs> that I was just like, <laughs> yeah, but, and Pinocchio is a big part of it, but like there's other, just like just the silly, stupid parts that under undermine this otherwise really interesting medical drama that it's just like, you know what? I'm getting rid of, my, I'm getting rid of my blackjack. So I, I had a complete series, including the first three volumes as the limited edition hardcovers. They're in a box by the front door now waiting to go get sold at the Beguiling. Some of those volumes go for hundreds of dollars, even though they were only printed 10 years ago. <laughs> I will never get them again because they're not going to be reprinted. No one would be silly enough to reprint <laughs> 20 volumes of Black Sa- or Blackjack once it's been reprinted already. Like maybe in some, like especially as print is going the way the dodo so i had to make this decision it's like this thing that is important because i have a whole tezuka collection i've got three shelves of, of tezuka am i well now i've only got two because i got rid of blackjack but it's like am i going to break up this collection am i going to get rid of the series because i don't really like it and the answer is yeah i did but i it still stabs me right in the heart that i'm never going to be able to see these books again even if i want them so yeah it's tough i kind of love that feeling yeah i hate to break it to you chris <laughs> but you know when i when i put out that thread i mm. I was procrastinating for other reasons, but I went and <laughs> compiled all those replies and I put them in an Excel sheet yeah. and I, and I figured out what was the top five most wanted, hard to find manga nowadays. And yeah. Phoenix is number one. Blackjack mm. is number two. <laughs> wow. uh. <laughs> well, fans head on to the beguiling at beguiling.ca <laughs> for your chance at extensively marked up individual volumes of Osama Tezuka's Blackjack coming probably sometime in September. Don't snooze, man, because <laughs> yeah, right? they, won't, they won't stick around for long. The day this goes live, people are going to be emailing Peter, just like, where is the Blackjack that Chris promised? It'll be great. It'll be great. And they're in immaculate condition because, you know, Chris takes good care of his books. I generally do. My Phoenix is very old, but still perfect. So I feel good about that. Maybe a little sun damaged. Anyway, thank you so much for Otaku News at Otaku underscore news on Twitter for inspiring today's question. As always, you can send us questions to our mailbox, mangasplaining at gmail.com, any of our social medias, which are all at mangasplaining, I believe, or just follow <laughs> Deb, David, or Chip. At some point, they will reference uh, mangasplaining, and that's your direct link to be able to go follow them on whatever social medias you like. I'm shameless. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Cut a check, and then I will. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> it is time for shout outs this week. I believe our friend David wanted to go first. David, did you have something you wanted to shout out this week? 
Yeah, I didn't want to go first, but I will shout something out. In addition to being a co-host of one of the best podcasts on the internet, moderately handsome, really good credit, and like extremely emotionally available, I write sometimes <laughs> fiction in addition to criticism. And I just put out a new book of short stories called Darker Than Blue, Go Back and Get It. You can buy the PDF, ebook, or Moby on Gumroad. It's gumroad.com slash David Brothers. Um, but yeah, buy my book. Costs five bucks. I think it's pretty cool. Some people have said pretty cool things about it. My friend Emma Rios did the cover. My uncle, who got me into comics, did the logo. And it's a fun little project. Awesome. awesome. Put it in the show notes, Chris. It's yeah. in the show notes. It was actually in the show notes last week, but sure. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Chipper, do you have anything you want to shout out this week? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Uh, I'm in the middle of moving. Everything's just a mess. Oh. I just, yeah. Don't you so, have, uh, you have so many books. Can you <laughs> one of your own? Well, I'm stressed because I'm going back to my books. Because I'm flying back to Toronto. And also I'm flying back to a bunch of boxes in my front hall that have been piling up for a year of all the comics that I've made oh. and the comps that have shown up that I have to do something with. So I kind of yeah. want to go and I'll help out with that. That'll be fun. Digging through, <laughs> digging through boxes with my grubby little fingers. It'll be good. It'll be good. Deb, did you have a shout out for this week? Jeez. I mean, I feel like I've, I keep mentioning the same books over and over again. So I'm a little bit, a little bit scared. I'm going to mention something I've already talked about. <laughs> hey, you know, that's just the seal of approval. Okay. Yeah. Right. It means you really like it. Okay. Well, I like K- K- Kageki Shoujo a lot. That's the manga about uh, girls going to a, a school like Takarazuka. Uh, there's mm-hmm. an anime on Funimation right now, and it's really excellent. I see people kind of warning people off this book because there's a scene where one of the characters is very emotionally cold and frightened of men. It's revealed that she was molested by her mother's boyfriend. And there's this character who suffers with bulimia because she gets you know, told by the teachers that she's too fat to be an actress. So there are some, I guess, in, in the parlance of the day, there are some trigger warnings in there. But I overall, I think this series is super heartwarming. I learn a lot about Takarazuka and about Kabuki. Mm-hmm. And it's really well drawn. And I just love it. I, I picked it as my for the best and worst this year as my favorite best new manga for teens and kids. Cool. Oh, awesome. that's great. Uh, so Best and Worst happened. You you could shout that out. Where and when did Best and Worst manga happen? Dave ended and I have both been on it on previous years. So <laughs> And I missed you dearly on that. I really do. <laughs> With this year's Best and Worst manga because Comic-Con opted to not have it this year. We did it on Comics Beat. We did a live stream and the, the video is on Comics Beat. But Comic-Con did host allow us to host the manga publishing roundtable. We had people from Square Enix, Yen Press, Kodansha, Denpa, and Viz. (laughs) And and they gave a great, great one-hour roundtable about what's what's going on in the manga business, how how and why things get licensed or not. It's on the Comic-Con YouTube channel, so do check it out. We'll link both of those video podcasts, I guess, or installments in the show notes as well, uh, mangasplaining.com. My shout out this week is there's a new Tayo Matsumoto book out, and I'm so excited. It is called Number Five. It is about a future in which the governments of the world have sort of come to peace together, but they've done so by giving the world superheroes to believe in and rally around and each sort of continent has its own superhero it's by Tayo Matsumoto as I mentioned and one of the superheroes number five because they're numbered because it's 
it's Japan, frankly, and <laughs> they're either numbered or colors. So uh, number five goes rogue and the other superheroes have to go after him and track him down. And the way that that happens and why it happens is never been more relevant than today, even when it was originally created. I'm glad that Viz has brought this back. It looks like they've actually even retained all of the color pages, which is crazy because this is a very weird ass project that has like random color pages throughout different kinds of art from Matsumoto pushing himself in different directions. And for real hardcore fans, it has the never before published, reprinted, translated chapter number zero, which was done number of years after number five was completed. And that's actually how the book starts now. So I'm very excited. Yeah, that's out now from Viz. Volume two comes out, I think, before Christmas. It's the book I'm most looking forward to reading, but don't physically have in my possession yet. So that's why I'm shouting it out. So, uh, yeah, that's this week's oh, oh, shout outs. I've got, I've got one more shout out. Sorry. You got a shout out? Yeah, yeah. A book I just read, Phoenix Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> I highly recommend it. If anyone hasn't checked it out, please do. I heard good things about that one. Yeah. 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 I'm more of a future fan myself, Chip. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Manga Explaining. Thanks so much for listening and coming back for season two. We'll see you again next week. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>